Did you ever read Winnie the Pooh books as a kid? Or watch any of the movies about his adventures in the Hundred Acre Wood? Or maybe you had a Winnie the Pooh lunchbox, some stuffed animals. Well, if you answered yes to any of those questions, chances are you were as shocked as I was to learn that the beloved bear is being portrayed in a new film as... You should be close now. We're not going to find them. We will. Pooh, Piglet, Eeyore. We were friends for many years, and they're out there. A serial killer. How could this happen? How could a character, adored by generations of children, suddenly appear as a knife-wielding, bloodthirsty monster? Surely this wasn't something A.A. Milne intended when he first conceived of Christopher Robin, along with Pooh, Piglet, Eeyore, and the rest of the gang, way back in the 1920s. Oh, mother. It turns out Pooh Bear isn't the only iconic character who can legally be used in new works. Alice in Wonderland, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Snow White, Cinderella, and many, many, many more are also fair game for content creators these days. And the reason, as you're about to hear, has everything to do with the nuances of the intellectual property system. This is Stroke of Genius, proudly presented by the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. I'm your host, IP enthusiast, entrepreneur, and business growth specialist, Raha Francis. On this episode, we're going to tackle a timely topic that's left a lot of people scratching their heads, the benefits and limitations of copyright protection when it comes to the use of some iconic pop culture characters. We may be on the verge of a massive shift in our media landscape, with copyright protection scheduled to expire for a veritable laundry list of famous figures from old novels, children's stories, comic books, even the early days of animation. It's already happened to Sherlock Holmes, The Great Gatsby, Dracula, and Frankenstein's monster. And under current copyright law, Mickey Mouse, Steamboat Willie Edition, that is, and even Superman and Batman are all set to enter the public domain in the next decade or so. That carries a ton of implications for fans, companies, and creators who need to understand their rights and how to walk the fine line between copyright infringement and free to use. To help us pull off that tricky balancing act, I'm excited to introduce my guest for today's episode. Christine Chow is an associate at Womble Bond Dickinson LLP, focused on IP transactions. She's also written extensively about just how public the public domain actually is. Christine, welcome to Stroke of Genius. Hi, Raha. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Christine, first, I have to ask what your reaction was when you heard that Winnie the Pooh was being portrayed as a serial killer in a new movie. I mean, I was shocked. Were you? Honestly, I was absolutely horrified. I mean, I think of him as like this big, cuddly yellow teddy bear, you know, that everyone loves, has friends, eats honey, sleeps a lot, right? And so when you see this whole clip of him in the abstract, it's kind of scary. So maybe we should start by discussing the actual rules surrounding copyright and the public domain. How does it work exactly? I mean, if I create a new character, how do I copyright it? 
What does that do? And how long does the protection last? Okay, so copyright protection starts the moment you have put pen to paper, like you draw him or her out. Copyright protection vests right there and then. It protects original works of authorship that are fixed in a tangible medium. So as an individual creator, the moment you create that, you get protection through your lifetime plus 70 years after you die. So your estate, similarly to like the Sherlock Holmes estate, can protect your character. And what exactly are we protecting here? The, the right to do what with that character? Yeah, so you have multiple exclusive rights. You can reproduce, so make copies. You can make derivative works, which is, you kind of think of it as like a riff on something. And then you can distribute the copies to the public. If it's a choreographic work, you can perform it publicly and you get to display the work publicly and make commercial use of, of your character. Christine, can you clarify for those who aren't familiar, what exactly the term public domain means? Right. So the public domain, I like to think of it as like this massive vat of works where intellectual property rights no longer attach. So basically you can use them without licensing them, without needing to ask someone to borrow it or make derivative works. So basically it's a free for all. If we take a step back, Christine, what's the purpose of copyright protection? Like you say that we're protecting authorship. What's the reason for that? Well, in the United States, actually, constitutionally, it's given to it's it's a right. It's basically to protect the creative endeavor that goes into making these sort of literary works, musical works. And so you can profit, right? You know, you've come up with the next big character, right? You as the author get to profit off of this commercially for your lifetime. No one can copy it and, and distribute it in a way where they would be interfering with your ability to make money. Is there a difference between using characters for monetary benefit versus not-for-profit applications? So because I'm a lawyer, I'm going to say it depends. Uh, you know, we, we get into nuance here, right? Right. There's this whole four-factor fair use test that gets applied. For example, if it's like an educational use and you're copying it to distribute to like your classroom, that's less likely to get you in trouble than you copy a whole book and you're trying to sell the book, right? Um, if you're just copying a few pages for your English class to read or something like that. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Now, it's worth also pointing out that not all Winnie the Pooh friends are public domain, like Tigger, for example. So why is that? So A.A. Milne's first book that was published in 1926 is the one that entered the public domain at the beginning of this year. Uh, so Tigger wasn't introduced until the second book, which was published in 1928. So Tigger is still under copyright protection, which is probably why they didn't use him as a serial killer. Instead, you get a terrifying poo and piglet with tusks. So yeah, so you just have to be careful, right? Copyright can be very nuanced because when you think of Winnie the Pooh and all of the short stories and everything that he encompasses, all those short stories didn't roll out all at once, right? It was kind of a gradual entering of, of the stories into the public domain. Now, obviously, when most people think of Winnie the Pooh, they think of the way he appeared on screen with his cute little cropped red shirt. But just because he's now part of the public domain, does that mean that everything we associate with a character is now fair game for creators? No. So this is where a lot of distinction and nuance needs to come in, especially when people want to use these characters. So really what entered the public domain is Winnie the Pooh as they're depicted in A. Milne's first book. So, you know, he doesn't have the cute little crop top on. He actually spells his name with hyphens, uh, which 
Disney later took out. You know, in a podcast, you can't see that, but down in writing, you can. So you just want to be careful when when using that. For example, going back to the horror slasher film, Winnie the Pooh, when you see the trailer, he's not wearing a red shirt. He's wearing plaid with overalls or something. So you want to try to avoid any sort of overlap in those depictions in, in your works later down the line, because then you run into like potential copyright infringement, which is what we're trying to avoid. Christine, earlier you mentioned Sherlock Holmes, who entered the public domain in the UK in the early 2000s, I think. But we've still seen some legal challenges in the arena. Why is that? So the Sherlock Holmes estate argues that there are certain elements that are still under copyright protection. For example, the Enola Holmes movie on Netflix. So in that movie, Sherlock Holmes is showing some more personality, some warmer feelings instead of being his, what I think everyone perceives as a more cold and like analytical self. And so the state argued that because those personality traits didn't manifest until later short stories, those are still under copyright protection and therefore could not be used. So that's kind of a way for states to prolong the copyright protection and to keep things, I I, I don't want to say under wraps, but you would have to license certain personalities from them to encompass that usage. This is great stuff, but we're going to take a quick break. Please stick around to find out how we managed to cram a little bit of Ryan Reynolds into this podcast. I'm Raha Francis, and you're listening to Stroke of Genius, the podcast that explores intellectual property from the perspective of successful inventors, innovators, and creators. This season, we're tackling some myths and misconceptions to help you better understand how to navigate the tricky world of IP protection and learn how the system can work for everyone, especially people from historically underrepresented communities. Please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about the work of the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, just visit ipoef.org. Welcome back. Today, we're addressing some common misconceptions about copyright protection with the help of Christine Shao, who wrote a super fascinating article for IP Watchdog about Winnie the Pooh entering the public domain earlier this year. And Christine, clearly you aren't the only person who noticed. We've already talked about the new Pooh slasher movie, but it turns out beloved Canadian actor Ryan Reynolds also marked the occasion with a YouTube video from Mint Mobile earlier this year. So yesterday was public domain day. Uh, It's the day where classic works enter the public domain. Uh, And this year, the original Winnie the Pooh becomes public domain. So I think you can see where this is going. And I expect that we'll be hearing from a certain mouse about this Pooh very, very soon. This raises an interesting question for me, Christine, because the story that Ryan goes on to tell features Winnie the Pooh dealing with an overpriced cell phone bill. It seems a little like a parody, but how does the Copyright Act treat works of parody then? Right. So parody needs to imitate the original work for the audience to understand what it's trying to parody. Because if you can't connect the parody back to the original art, you're not making a commentary. Mostly the the point of parody is to make a comical or a societal observation. So with parody, there's more leeway because the point of the parody is to use 
the original work in such a way where you can comment on it, which is kind of like how SNL can parody certain things and, you know, they have their Jeopardy skit, but you have to know that that's what they're parodying for it to be funny. So similar to the Mint Mobile commercial. One thing we've seen really explode in recent years, thanks to the popularity of platforms like Wattpad, is fan fiction or what folks call fanfic for short. Now, for those who don't know, that's when fans use, remix, or subvert existing stories in sometimes surprising or unexpected ways. There's a ton of Harry Potter stuff out there, for example. I mean, oh my God, so many of my preteen years were spent in those worlds. Full disclosure. (laughs) Now, where does copyright law stand on that? So fan fiction is usually non-commercial. So we kind of go back to this fair use test that I mentioned earlier. Basically, you look at the purpose and character of the use, the nature of the copyrighted work, which is like how much is the fan fiction borrowing from that? And I don't want to say a big factor, but something that a court, you know, if this went to litigation would consider is like the effect that this fan fiction has on the original work and on the market. So we're kind of going back into, you know, profit and and monetary. So most fan fiction, you know, free to read on the internet, download, make a PDF, you can read it and it's usually okay. You mentioned Harry Potter, they're just borrowing the characters and maybe their personalities, but they're giving the characters like a whole new backstory or like a sequel. And most of the time, you know, it doesn't interfere with the original work. And by balancing all of those factors, generally fanfic just lives on, if anything, you know, you kind of want people to be that invested in your characters, right? Like, I think that's like a hard balancing test, you know, how much the original author is willing to let things go. Um, for example, Fifty Shades of Grey, someone wrote this. It started off as a fan fiction of Twilight, right? That becomes a different and harder balancing test. So for your regular fan fiction author, I think you're probably okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's fascinating, right? Even just the fact that so much of this comes down to nuances and balancing tests, to your point, really fascinating stuff. Earlier, I mentioned that Mickey Mouse is the next famous character set to enter the public domain, I think in 2024, but only the Steamboat Willie version. Christine, could you explain why that is? Right. So uh, Steamboat Willie came out in uh, 1928. And because it was a work made for a corporation, copyright protection lasts for 95 years after publication. So, you know, 1928 plus 95, you get 2023. So Jan 1st, 2024, Steamboat Willie out into the public domain. You can use iterations of that. And only that iteration comes in because Later, Mickey Mouse, you know, that you think about now with the ears and like the fun outfits and everything, those are all derivative works, which Disney had the exclusive right to do off of Steamboat Willie. Those are all still all under copyright protection. You also have to think about how Mickey Mouse serves as a trademark and trademarks can last forever as long as they're maintained by the trademark owner, which is Disney. So uh, I, I would be careful on that end. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting topic you bring up, right? Trademarks. Could you explain a little bit about the role of trademarks and maybe why they're maintained as long as they're being used? Right. So trademarks fundamentally are a source identifier. Like when you think of Disney, right? What's the first image that pops into your mind? 
probably Mickey Mouse in his ears. That is a source identifier for all the fun times that you have at Disney, you know, the Magic Kingdom, the big castle and everything and all those films. So because that's a source identifier and it's a way for consumers to know what product they're getting, that protection can last as long as that is maintained. That's an interesting distinction that you've made on the difference between the purpose of copyright protection versus trademark protection. I mean, although they seem similar, copyrights exist to protect authorships and trademarks exist primarily to protect consumers. So if we apply that to the Mickey Mouse trademarks, then it seems like they, unlike copyrights, then kind of just exist as long as these Mickey Mouse products are in use. Is that right? Yeah. So so the purpose, you're, you're totally right. The purpose is to protect different people at different times. For consumers, right, you don't want them to get a subpar product and be confused about that, which is why you have the trademarks to basically indicate quality and source and, and what you associate with that. So as long as Disney keeps using Mickey Mouse and his ears, unlike, you know, in the copyright statute, there's like a hard cutoff. As long as they use them as trademarks and as a source identifier, there's no time limit. Got it. Got it. You've also written about the role of disclaimers and copyright claims. Are they a good way to avoid legal trouble then? Just disclaim it? Well, I think it helps to disclaim if you're using something in the public domain. For example, this whole Winnie the Pooh horror film, this is not associated with Disney or their Winnie the Pooh in any way. However, that's not going to be like total protection. Uh, It's better to use than to not use. But you can't use, for example, Harry Potter and totally just steal it and make your own, you know, wands and capes and use uh, the little Gryffindor logo and be like, oh, but just kidding. We're not associated with the Harry Potter franchise at all. That disclaimer is not going to get you out of trouble. Finally, Christine, just to bring it all back to Winnie the Pooh, am I to understand that he's being portrayed as a serial killer because copyright protection has expired? I mean, he could really be portrayed as anything anybody wants because he's now in the public domain, right? Yeah, pretty much. You know, uh, he, the copyright has ended. OG, A.A. Milne, Winnie the Pooh is no longer under copyright protection. So you don't need to get licensing rights for that iteration of Winnie the Pooh from Disney. You can use him as you like. And if you want to portray him as an even more crazy serial killer, you probably can. But then, you know, are you infringing on the you know, serial killer movie makers, rights, Right. Potentially, because that's his derivative work. And I think it's just human nature, right, to want to borrow from a lot of, yeah. right? We're, we're not just like empty shells. We are people that absorb everything and bring things in from our lives. And you just have to be careful how you manifest that absorption. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's, it's a huge question. What's the difference between inspiration and infringement? And, you know, part of that nuance is because we're not just humans that live in a vacuum. We grow, we have different experiences, we experience the world in all these different ways, and we bring them in. And for artists, their expression of their artistry manifests from all of this input. And the input, you know, you kind of have to toe the line between inspiration and infringement and that can be really hard when you're trying to pay tribute, when you're trying to be like, hi, this was really inspiring. I would like to model myself 
after you. Or like, hi, this was really interesting. Let's completely flip it on its head and create something new. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And I think through all of that, IP law becomes very nuanced, uh, especially in, in copyright, just because there's so many different ways that it can go wrong. You know, infringement could be accidental even, and you just don't know it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see what people do with Popeye, Porky Pig, King Kong in the next few years. Or actually, no, maybe I can wait after seeing what happened to Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) But um, Christine, thanks so much for being on Stroke of Genius. This was super interesting. Thank you, Raha. I had a great time and always happy to talk about IP. My guest today has been Christine Shaw, a lawyer specializing in intellectual property transactions based in North Carolina. Okay, so before you get all excited and start writing a screenplay that features Superman, Batman, or Mickey Mouse, it's really important to note that only the particular version of the character that is entering the public domain is free to use. What does that mean? Well, that means Mickey would have to be black and white and without his iconic gloves. Superman couldn't fly or use his laser vision. And while Batman is fair game, he'd have to find a new ride because the Batmobile is off limits. In the words of Winnie the Pooh himself, you really need to think, think, think about what you're planning because the rules related to these characters are much more complicated and nuanced than many people might realize. For example, even after copyrights expire, a work might be protected by other forms of IP protection, like trademarks. But that makes sense when you consider all the goals of the IP system, like encouraging the creative arts, providing control over the use of creations, protecting consumers, and even allowing copyrighted works to eventually become part of the public domain. I'm Raha Francis, and this is Stroke of Genius, brought to you by the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, you may also want to check out an episode from July of 2020 called The Wizarding World of Copyright. And to learn more about the work of the IPO Education Foundation, visit ipoef.org. Bye for now.